Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney, and a happy Easter to all of you listening today. Whether you celebrated it or not, this is always an excuse to watch one of the great biblical epics from American cinema, whether it be The Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur, The Greatest Story Ever Told, even something a little down and dirty like The Passion of the Christ. Uh, we, we find this to be one of the many great opportunities during the year to gather around our television set and watch something unifying as a family. Today, I have a returning guest, Eric Williams, who you would know from the Clerks episode. And in case that's not enough of a clue, or in case the title of this episode is not enough of a clue, we talked about perhaps the greatest biblical epic ever to come out of American cinema, and that is Dogma. Kevin Smith's 1999 uh, religious comedy starring Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Linda Fiorentino, uh, Alan Rickman, Chris Rock, Salma Hayek, George Carlin, Alanis Morissette, and uh, many other great names. So without any further ado, I will just cut straight to the chase. I know you've all got Easter baskets to look for, so as you're opening every cupboard and washing machine, Please enjoy this episode of We Are Movies. Oh, by the way, did you see the Snyder Cut? I've watched um, over two hours of it, not for (laughs) lack of enthusiasm, but, well, I want to say, like, I'm not as enthusiastic to finish it as I thought I would be, Mm. because, like, as much as I kind of begrudgingly like at the time I enjoyed seeing the movie for the simple fact that like I've always been more DC than Marvel just like on a comic standpoint and it was like it was there was something great about seeing all these characters on screen for the first time it's just they deserved a much better movie and I think that the Snyder Cut is a lot closer to what they deserved but and I think I like Zack Snyder as a person much more than I like him as a filmmaker. Um, And, and I think like a lot of the stuff you've said too, is like, I'm glad he got to make this movie and I really respect that he did it um, without getting paid for it because he wanted to like 100% like get his creative freedom. And that meant like, if you don't pay me for it, that's fine. Which I 100% like, appreciated and respected um and seeing like all the flash stuff like kind of and all this backstory for flash and cyborg was actually it didn't felt like it didn't feel like they were just shoehorned in to the story um so i've 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 been somewhat impressed with what i've seen with what i've seen so far but it's also like i'll get to the rest of it (laughs) probably later today it's one of those cases where it's like it doesn't matter if i don't like the filmmaker it's like by by principle, I kind of have to just support director's cuts, you know, like it's, I'm a good, Hey, I'm a good free speech guy. I I read my Glenn Greenwald, you know, I know, (laughs) I know what the right opinion is. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The Richard Donner cut of Superman two is, you know, the far superior one. And exactly. Yeah. (laughs) If only they could have completed it. Yeah, exactly. So you said you're a DC guy. Were you always a comic book guy? Yeah, since I can remember, my dad, um, he's got, like, just boxes and boxes here in my basement, and, like, 
I've always been more of a DC guy, but my favorite superhero is Spider-Man. So it's kind of like a, sure. like, like a little um, kind of just balance between the two. But I mean, the earliest memories I have, like of going to the movies, a lot of them are either like seeing, well, when the first Spider-Man movie came out, we went to see it. I want to say at Celebration. And the minute like Green Goblin came on screen, just in the opening credits where it's his mask, I started mm -hmm. sobbing because I was terrified of him. And I like my dad took me out of the theater and he was so mad because he was so looking forward to seeing the movie. <laughs> um, and he hasn't let me live that one down for a while. But um, like seeing that and Spider-Man 2 when I was like seven were huge deals to me. And like Spider-Man 2 and I, me and you and I shared the same opinion that it's it's a masterpiece and like that behind the dark knight is like my fifth favorite movie of all time and like second best superhero movie and um i just it's like that and um seeing like i just said the dark knight i saw that um in imax like the day it came out or that weekend and that was like a huge deal and i think we were kind of in a um in a prime spot to see the like no matter how you feel about it at this point like to see the marvel cinematic universe kind of be born into like this um into this kind of culture of film at the time or like this kind of environment um seeing it become what it is today has been like kind of in the early days was really cool and just seeing all these little easter eggs that ended up being like building blocks towards the avengers and then you know Thanos and everything I think it's it's it was I'm glad I've been kind of in this period of time where superhero movies have become more kind of not just like mainstream but more serious and like you can actually make like serious and like meaningful movies out of them instead of like a Joel Schumacher like Batman and Robin you know or as much as I love the Tim Burton movies those aren't like really anything serious it's I mean it's it's Tim Burton. You watch it and it's like, okay, like this is, this could have been claymation if you really wanted to, but you know, I'm, I'm gl also glad they did it live action, but sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think DC and like Marvel or just any comics really have been just kind of like a big staple for me growing up. But um, I've, I've been meaning to watch the new Invincible show on uh, Amazon Prime because that's a great, great comic book. Is I that believe. the one with uh, J.K. Simmons? And yeah, and Stephen Yoon. Yeah, Stephen yeah, Yoon, yeah, yeah. It's it's the comic is fantastic, and it was by the same. It was by Robert Kirkman. So yeah. and like, um, as much as I don't like The Walking Dead or at least the TV show, I know that he's a great writer. So I've I've been really excited for that. But um, no, it's um. It's been it's been a great, great time period to be kind of a fan of all those things when it comes to film. So, I mean, funnily enough, Kevin Smith is kind of known for the fact that he sort of I mean, he did like a Stan Lee cameo before it was cool, you know, like, right. yeah, he, he was a bit ahead of the curve on some on like comic book fandom. Like now you could say it's you could safely say it's a mainstream fandom now. Um, right. Did your love of Kevin Smith at all was that ever connected to your love of comic books? I would say so, but it it kind of formed and um, merged a, a bit later because as a kid, 
it's easier and like my parents would let me see those superhero movies like without really any question but it took them a few years for me for them to let me watch like clerks or anything you know of that nature and um having watched them i mean i remember watching clerks and clerks too i want to say when i was like 12 and i was like pretty mature enough to understand a lot of the jokes but also like i'm glad i didn't watch it as a kid because that would have uh included a lot of really awkward or just yeah awkward situations for my dad to hear about you know at school like oh um your son he was talking about a snowball at at class today you know and it's just um but once once i kind of watched clerks and clerks too i really started to kind of fall down the kevin smith rabbit hole i mean and even before then like i had always known about jay and silent bob kind of as their own almost superheroes to me um, in a way. And I didn't even know them like as drug dealers at first. I thought they were just, you know, a cool guy with long hair who talks a lot. And then another cool guy with long hair who doesn't talk, but he's the director of the movies. Um, but as I, as I grew up and I saw mall rats, that's when it was like, you know, Jason Lee, he's ta- doing these whole like kind of monologues about these superheroes. And before it was cool. And it was just like, all this stuff I knew, but in a really kind of inappropriate movie that was um, like, it was risque for me to watch at the time. The first time I watched Mallrats, I didn't even know that Stan Lee was going to be in it. So that was definitely a big like Stan Lee kind of cameo and cool thing to see for cool thing for me to see at the time. But as I've grown older too, like I'm always looking forward to the next Kevin Smith movie and like whatever, news he's got and i like you know hearing what he has to say about certain movies coming out like um when i was watching dogma um it kind of came to me that i think like he's he's a lot i mean he's very smart but i like when it comes to writing i think he's i want to say he's almost like the aaron sorkin of humor and i don't want that to sound you know kind of like like douchey or pretentious but he's got that kind of skill to just bring the dialogue and the writing down to a human level that's just feels uh, no matter how like trained these actors are or experienced like the dialogue in of itself feels so authentic and like just something you could have a conversation with that it just helps to become that much more real um and so yeah kevin smith he's he's always just been a voice in filmmaking that i've always respected since then even though I still have yet to watch the Jay and Silent Bob reboot, but that's, that's been on my watch list for a long time. Um, so, and I, and I believe it was Halloween 2018. Um, my roommate and I, we went as Jay and Silent Bob and I was Silent Bob and I tried starting the night off by not talking, but I realized, Oh, we're going to have to go to the bar and I'm going to have to ask for a drink. So I'm just going to give up on that running joke. If you were to be consistent, you would have to say one sentence that night at a perfect time moment. (laughs) And then maybe, maybe one more. Um, And like to keep up with the Jay and Silent Bob strikes back, it'd have to be a really kind of methodical and drawn out speech (laughs) about copyright claims. And, and, you know, like, (laughs) that's one thing and i don't know if i disagree with you here necessarily but the interesting thing i always thought about kevin smith's dialogue is that it's it does sound conversational but i don't think it's 
I don't think it's naturalistic and I don't think it's trying to be either. Like I always, he does this thing where his characters will like rattle off these very verbose uh, analogies and stuff that like, it sounds casual. Like they don't sound like they're more educated than they're supposed to be. But there is this sort of like, I was watching Clerks the other day and there's just, uh, just, I showed it to my roommate for the first time. And there are like just some moments where a character will go on a little, like a little long with a bit of a tangent. And then there's this very quick fire back and forth that it's like, I wish I could talk like that with my friends. Like I'm sure I stutter way more and I do it on this podcast. (laughs) I could agree with that. I mean, I think the magic is that like, it is kind of the this more thought out and like kind of um like you said drawn out topic of conversation but and like you said it's it sounds naturalistic or like it kind of on the surface it does but um it's yeah like it's kind of a more deep down kind of rooted conversation i mean like with the the chulies gum representative he's just yeah. like in this store just going off and off and off and he just gets this whole crowd around him and almost starts a riot over Chuli's gum. And like, yeah, you'd never really see that in a, in an actual uh, quick stop, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, it, it's for the, for the story and the movie they've presented just in a short amount of time, like thus far in the movie, you know, it it makes sense. And especially like with all the characters around, you know, with Dante, with Randall, and with the whole monologue they do about, you know, like um, the second Death Star and all the independent yeah. contractors and everything. That's my favorite like, part. <laughs> yeah. And like that might be a conversation like people like you and I would have. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely it's 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 some sort of magic that he has, like with with the humor and the dialogue. And um, I think dogma especially is like both kind of a it's got a lot of those those elements in it but it's also with the context and like the story behind it it's really really well crafted and like really really smart and it's he he did his his homework like he like he did a lot of research for this movie definitely and it's uh it's also his most ambitious film at that point in time. You know, I think Kevin Smith was kind of being pigeonholed as like the hangout movie guy. Like he was trying to do like a Richard Linklater thing where it was all his movies were just about people hanging out or something. And then he kind of went, he he took a huge leap forward with doing this quote unquote biblical epic uh, sort of with, with, you know, fantastical aspects, but also I think it's his most ambitious in the what he's taking aim at like mm-hmm. you know in, in his earlier stuff like clerks and mall rats he's very much like working within an environment that he knows very well that he's part of it's you know like nerdy 20 somethings kind of stuck between two places in life and with dogma it's i mean it's like a it's a political satire like oh, it's absolutely it's well, and I, I posted this like when I watched it yesterday on my review for um, for it on Letterboxd, my my absolute favorite part about dogma is telling it, telling it or is uh, explaining it to people who have never heard of it. Um, basically, you know, starting it off with, oh, it's a it's a um, satire by Kevin Smith about the cynicism of Catholicism 
where two fallen angels played by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck try to get back into heaven, but are stopped by the um, descendant of Jesus Christ, helped by the voice of God and prophets, the 13th apostle, um, a muse. And it's like, and then when I explain that to people, they're like, what? Um, and it's just, I find it really, really amazing that they did. I mean, cause Goodwill hunting was like 96, 97, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they do that, a uh, critically lauded movie, you know, like, so just something that starts careers for basically both of them. Yeah. Ben Affleck had done a few movies before that, but like, that's what made him kind of more of a household name and same with Matt Damon. And then Ben Affleck's like, Oh, I love Kevin Smith. You know, he was, he did that uh, mall rats movie with me. He's a cool guy. I'll totally play, you know, an evil angel for him. And like me and Matt will do that. And it's like reading the background of it on Wikipedia um, I mean, it makes sense that it pissed a lot of people off, but <laughs> us being, I mean, I was two at the time you would have like, maybe been like, um, like not even one, but I don't remember any of this. I just remember the only thing I remember about dog when we're growing up was seeing like the DVD we had of it, but, um, it like, it's, it's kind of, it's not astonishing that it pissed people off, but it's astonishing that, like you said, this was. Kevin Smith's like his most ambitious movie and it's really early in his filmography. Like it's one of his first few movies and he just decided to kind of jump out of the gate with it. And it's like really well produced. Like it's, it's, it's not anything like say like the hateful eight or something grand in its cinematography, but compared to his earlier films, like it looks great and it's shot really well. And I think it's just, and it's ambitious in both like the, the, like the story and the scale of it, but also it's his, I'd say it's his best movie in terms of a production, like all of the moving pieces put together and really just like a star studded cast. Like, yeah. I mean, I think with, it's the biggest cast he's ever worked with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Salma had just, the fact that he got George Carlin as a yeah. as a cardinal, you know, who was uh, I guess George Carlin was a bit of a regular collaborator with him because he was also in Jersey Girl. So. Oh, that's <laughs> well, I, I was going to say that's right, but I never watched it because I was that one of his more critically panned movies. OK, it was. But I'm actually willing to say that Jersey Girl is one of his best movies, okay. uh, at least from like a filmmaking standpoint. And I think part of that is because. Um, it's shot by Vilmos Zygmunt, who also did like uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Long Goodbye and The Deer Hunter. Oh, wow. uh, so it's definitely, I think, out of Kevin Smith's filmography, it's like the best made movie on a technical level. Um, it's kind of a trite, you know, family comedy outside of that, but I actually don't think it's bad. It's just not, it doesn't really fit in with Kevin Smith's <laughs> filmography. For some reason, well, I, not for some reason. I know that they both have Ben Affleck, but I always get wait. Ben Affleck's in Jersey Girl, right? Yeah. Okay, I get that mixed up with Jiggly a lot, and <laughs> I feel like why I I think they're just as they might be like just as critically panned, but I haven't watched either of them. I, I think Jiggly is considered worse. Okay. I believe. <laughs> That's not by Kevin Smith as well, is it? It's not by Kevin Smith. Okay. No. Okay. 
Yeah, because uh, I, I, I might watch – I'll probably watch Jersey Girl one of these days just to, like, complete the Kevin Smith filmography. But Jiggly is is not, like, really on my radar at this point. Oh, yeah. There's no need to ever see it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the cast of Dogma also, like, Chris Rock and uh, Alan Rickman and, like you said, Salma Hayek, a lot of these people – uh who who kind of some of them show up late in the game like if you don't know who's in the movie when you watch it it's a great series of surprises but also kind of ambitious and how like i mean politically the main character uh linda fiorentino's character bethany she, she's she works at an abortion clinic and she's a descendant of jesus christ and she needs to go on this holy mission that is like Especially for like the 90s. I mean, I, I assume that would be controversial. I don't know how this movie was received at the time, but knowing that like, you know, movies like Life of Brian uh, had people, you know, or like The Last Temptation of Christ had people picketing outside of the theaters. I can't imagine how people reacted to dogma. Well, I, I haven't seen any videos online, but when I was reading um, like part of the history part of it, um, I want to say there was a picture included of people out there picketing. And from what I can tell, a majority was just, well, not just, but like mostly the Catholic church itself. I don't really think Protestants would have, they'd probably like any bad, you know, attention towards the Catholic church as they can get. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, from what I could, from what I read, there was mostly like big pushback from Catholic groups and even like before that to, or like with he definitely knew that was going to happen um going into this movie with the whole like disclaimer at the beginning of it and explaining you know why this is a work of fiction everything is you know just clearly meant to be satirical like please <laughs> like just watch the movie um but it it's yeah i think i think bethany's character is is kind of like the perfect um kind of catalyst for the audience to go through because it's just it's very representative of kind of like what people what some people were feeling at the time and um i mean i'm not catholic myself i grew up like in a lutheran household so we were i were on the protestant side but i i want to say that like kind of growing up in that 90s environment and like kind of that um clinton post Reagan era it's see well like one of my favorite lines in the movie too is that is when she's talking to um Janine Garofalo that's that's her name yeah. right she's talking to her in the um like the break room and Bethany goes I, I think God is dead and Janine Garofalo goes spoken like a true Catholic and I think that's just kind of not just necessarily what they must have or what they felt at the time but kind of and not even just Catholicism but like just the sentiment of a lot of um, kind of Christians who are disillusioned and, and there's that whole argument or not argument, but that whole analogy that she says where, you know, when you're a kid, faith is like a glass of water. When you're a kid, it's small and it fills up easily. But as you grow older, the, the glass gets bigger, but the amount of water stays the same. You got to keep filling it up. And I think Bethany's kind of like a perfect, like I said, catalyst for the audience to go through the movie with, because she's just as like surprised and just scared, not scared, but like bewildered by everything going ar on around her. Like she's got to stop two angels from getting into heaven. Mm -hmm. She meets two prophets who are 
um, hanging outside of an abortion clinic to try and pick up loose women, um, <laughs> which is that because I, I remember when I did the last episode, one of your questions was, um, what's your favorite line from the movie? And I think like when she asks him, what are you guys doing out here? He goes, we're here to pick up chicks. You know, I figured abortion clinic's a great place to meet loose women. I was like, that's my favorite line. The whole 13th apostle with Chris Rock is just, I think it's so smart and it's just, but at that point she's just kind of like, okay, let's just roll with the punches. And it's a movie that I think perfectly kind of shows off the time period that it was made and like what was surrounding it, but is also very kind of timeless in a sense that its messages and its satirical overtones and um, just sort of place in Kevin Smith's filmography, but also religious filmography, I think it's very kind of pertinent and could warrant, you know, discussions nowadays. And I'm kind of surprised that, you know, people who are Kevin Smith fans don't talk about it quite as much as they talk about clerks or, or, you know, mall rats or, you know, the Jay and silent Bob, like, yeah, they're in that movie, but it's kind of just seen as more of like a side movie when I think it should be one of the ones that's talked about the most. So. Yeah. I think it's like probably his second best movie. Um, yeah. And we've already talked about his first best. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the very, it's not subtle in that the very first scene of the movie is uh, George Carlin playing uh, this Cardinal Glick. Uh, and he's like this, this perfect, you know, charlatan marketing guy for the Catholic Church. Uh, and I mean, I, I think that's what begins the main conflict, right? Because they literally, they open a door to heaven and that's what makes Matt Damon and Ben Affleck begin their path of destruction because right. this means they can get into heaven so it's really the whole conflict is brought on by this you know the commercialism of the catholic church um and it's obviously very intentional that you know george carlin a man who railed against the church <laughs> all the time in his stand-up <laughs> is playing that role when did you first see the movie i want to say i first watched it in high school because by then i had seen um, you know, like Mallrats, Clerks 1 and 2, Jane Silent Bob. But I had only like known about Dogma. Like I said, the DVD that we had on my like um, like my big kind of just stack of DVD, like my dad's big thing he has on the wall. It's just all DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, I, I didn't know much about the story going into it. I just knew it was a Kevin Smith movie and that... Um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were in it. And I also knew that Salma Hayek did, does like a, a stripper scene in it, which also piqued my interest a bit. Um, That's why this and From Dusk Till Dawn were the two best movies ever made at one time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I just remember like being kind of hooked within that first like kind of two-person scene between Matt Damon and Ben Affleck where they're in the the airport and he's Matt Damon convinces a nun that religion is a sham based on um, the walrus and the carpenter and then you know he sits down and talks to him about why um, like this whole the whole Catholicism uh, is it yeah it's Catholicism wow it sucked me in from there with that kind of Kevin Smith magic 
And I wrote this in my notes yesterday too. I think that this is peak douchey Ben Affleck in the sense <laughs> that like, yeah, he plays a really big asshole and dazed and confused, but if you also give- mall rats, yeah. And mall rats too. <laughs> and yeah, he's like, he's like a real piece of shit in that one. But when you turn Ben Affleck into an angel, it's <laughs> like fallen from heaven. That just creates all sorts of room for him to play. And I'm so glad that he got to because it's it's just that peak kind of like I'm better than you. And, you know, I'm I'm the superior being and just something that I think he him and Matt Damon had a lot of fun with. And one of the things I also really admire about the film that I first kind of noticed yesterday was I really like how the the dynamics of the two kind of shift in the sense that at the beginning of the film, Bartleby is seen as kind of more of the like level headed and smarter angel. And Loki's the one that's, you know, causing havoc and the one that wants to, you know, just kind of destroy everything. And he's more of the, the bigger antagonist of the two, but then as you know, their plan to get to the church becomes closer and closer. Loki kind of becomes more of the sidekick and Bartleby is the one that's like really kind of going after the plan and has to get there. And another like piece of dialogue that I really, really liked was when um, they're in like the parking garage and Bartleby says he's talking about, you know, like we have to, he doesn't say like we have to wage a war against God, but he's like, we have to, he's basically saying like, we have to show him that, you know, we can get home. And Matt Damon's like, I've heard this kind of talk before and basically comparing him to, you know, Lucifer. And I thought just that whole kind of exchange was very well written and a very kind of just um, it just worked so well with the scene and the rhythm of the movie and like where it was going. And it just it was another just example of those two and their acting chemistry just kind of going off off the charts. And it was just it's since then, like since I first watched it, my favorite favorite part about the physical movie itself is like all the Loki and Bartleby scenes pretty much. Yeah. It would be easy to make them like two interchangeable baddies, but like the way that I, I guess uh, Ben Affleck as uh, Bartleby is more, he's more like malevolent. Whereas Loki, Matt Damon is childish and like mischievous sort of. And that does, yeah, that does create a good dynamic. And when you, what you said about about how this being like a prime Ben Affleck douche role, I feel like very early on he he sort of had this problem that a lot of just you know handsome young actors who break into Hollywood get, which is like we wanted to make him a movie star. Where I think he like thrives when he's playing somebody who's unlikable, right. and oftentimes you'll have an actor like him who ends up doing a lot of movie star roles and then they get these slumps like when he was in Daredevil and Geely and all of that stuff and and then people will just say like oh I don't like Ben Affleck I'm like you know why you don't like Ben Affleck because he's not playing the right roles like right. we're trying to push him down your throat as a likable guy when maybe that's not what he's best at playing right exactly I mean and like I was saying about the whole switching of the the dynamics I think it really it plays to the film's advantage in that like the first half 
you know, you kind of want to see them have fun and be destructive and kill every board member at the movie movies executive like kind of meeting they have. And that's that is I mean, it's that's also Ben Affleck scene like he's the one that's, you know, giving all these um, revealing pieces of dialogue about them. But you are there to watch Loki do all the killing and like you're there to kind of see the aftermath of it. And I think at the as the you know the first half of the film, it's it's great that it's more of Matt Damon's time to shine, but then with Ben Affleck being in that kind of douchey, unlikable role, when the stakes need to get high, and you know kind of reach its climax, you lit. I mean, you literally see him like kind of come down with his wings and in his suit of armor, and Matt Damon's already turned into a human by that point, and you know it's like this is the bad guy now. Like he is the main antagonist and he is who, you know, when Alanis Morissette as God, you know, just kills him. It's that <laughs> much more of a um, uh, just amazing moment because you have been so committed to like him being one of the bad guys. He's one of, he's just so. Also a glorious death. Yeah, it's a glorious death and you it's one of those examples of like you love to hate him or you hate to love him. And it's because he's it's that perfect dichotomy of he's an angel like he's supposed to be this um, like this being that God has created that is, you know, so like you said, kind of malevolent and um, will just like supposed to be a good being and something of pure nature but he turns into something that kind of rivals lucifer in terms of challenging god and and undoing all of existence and he and they even say in the movie like lucifer's just as pissed off as you are you know because you do what he has failed to do um and so yeah i think i just think that they are the two that steal the show with ben affleck specifically kind of being the 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 real show stealer in terms of his unlikability and his his real talent to play kind of someone this this evil honestly and just kind of um like just banal about it he doesn't care like he just wants to go home and have you heard that uh kevin smith was originally just going to title the movie god and no, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so he changed it to Dogma because he thought God was inappropriate. And I I think that kind of has a good I mean that that makes a good point of what I think the movie is lampooning in, in that it's it's not necessarily anti it's not making fun of all believers, you know, it's making fun of dogma. It's making fun of like the the sort of very specific things that divide all believers and the concept of religions as an institution um and in that way like i think i think the movie is like it can be taken as very i think it can be taken multiple ways somebody can take it as like an agnostic and think oh it's just it's funny to be you know shedding this kind of light on the idea of god and and jesus but it's also just i mean you could take it as a sort of a spiritual like return to the basics you know like it's not about all of this stuff <laughs> right well and there's that line that Salma Hayek has too where she goes you know every 
um, religion or every part of Christianity they've they've tried, but they've never got it right. And like they're all just kind of focusing too much on, you know, one side of it when, you know, it's it's not about, you know, the different kinds of faith. It's just about having faith. And I think that was that was a more optimistic line in what I mean, and I agree with you that it, you could interpret it many ways, but I think it's it airs more. I don't know, because like I want it to be optimistic, too, but it's definitely also a satire. And it has these very kind of flagrant criticisms of Catholicism and, and Christianity in general. So I want to say, like, I'd say it's about half and half optimistic and pessimistic, but airs more on the pessimistic side. Sure. But I think that line that she delivers is kind of is one of the more like positive and op- like I said, optimistic lines in this movie that kind of offers it more of a like more of an agnostic kind of approach like you were saying um and i think the the fact that it has like a happy ending and not like something that just kind of shits on christianity in general like it's like oh you're gonna have jesus too like you gotta look (laughs) out for that it's it's not something like it's ridiculous yeah but it's not saying it's not destroying the whole church of the Catholic church at the end of it. It's, it's more of a kind of hopeful ending for what the story was. So I'm Mike and I'm Allison. We've both been guests on we are movies before we love talking movies with Johnny, but I'm a jealous boy. You are. That's why we've decided to talk movies with with each each other. other. We started our own podcast called you You made Made me Me watch each week. We make each other watch a movie. The other has never seen. You made me watch new episodes every Friday. What do you think about the portrayal of God in the movie? Because there is a moment between Alan Rickman and Linda Fiorentino where she's, I think they're in like a pond or something, or she's, do you know what I mean? Where she's very upset because she's found out that she's going to be like, you know, the bearer of the next Jesus Christ. And I, Alan Rickman's basically saying like, I understand why it's tough. I didn't think it was you know, I didn't approve of it when God did it the first time either. Like, and he's, and he's just kind of making the case like, but that's, you know, it's your responsibility. It's what we, we have to do. And so it's like even Alan Rickman, who's playing like essentially the mouthpiece of God, uh, doesn't entirely understand God's motivations uh, or methods. And then when God does show up at the end, played by Alanis Morissette, uh, she's, you know, she's not portrayed to be, she's portrayed as very powerful and capable of violently destroying her enemies. Uh, but then also kind of uh, gives a feeling of comfort to the, to Bethany at the end. At least that's how I took it uh, when she has her wordless <laughs> interaction with her. Um, what do you think about the portrayal of God in the movie? I think it's it's pretty on on the nail, at least for like how I kind of would imagine god or how like i think of it um in general just because like like you were saying with alan rickman saying that i didn't approve of it and i didn't think it was fair but it's also not my you know place to say if it is or isn't and i'm not the one who decides all this you know it just it's a lot like you know when someone who is religious if they lose someone in their family or something you know devastating happens to them it's easy and quite you know 
probably one of the first things they do is either question their faith or question like, why would God do this? And it's just kind of that whole notion that we, we're not really supposed to kind of understand the thought process behind God or like why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that that, and that translates through like a lot of religions, whether it be Catholicism or, you know, Protestantism or even like, you know, Judaism or Islam, it's, it's all just kind of this idea that we are these, we're not the ones that, you know, are in contact with him. We are just kind of out here talking or trying to reach him and hope that he, he or she hears us um, because it's, it's just this idea that they are such an omnipotent and just a completely different being and deity from us that it's hard for us to comprehend. And that's almost not almost, that is kind of what I see God as is just something that is difficult and almost impossible for us to understand. And even like the angels don't fully understand the reasoning or like what they're doing. They just do it because they're, you know, servants of God. And I think there's that line where Bethany asks him, you know, like, what's God like? And he goes, he's, uh, he's lonely, but he's really funny. He's got a great sense of humor. And, you know, um, I love ski ball. Uh, and I, I think that, first of all, I think it's amazing that Alanis Morissette plays God. Yeah, and that yeah. is about the most like 19, that's the most 1999 part of the movie. <laughs> Um, but I think the portrayal of God is another one of the more optimistic parts of the movie, because in the Catholic church, God kind of seems like more of the, you know, um, like when someone says they're a God fearing Christian, that's kind of like the God that, that the Catholic church, at least from from what I can tell is more of that kind of God. Like he's very wrathful and you don't want to cross him. And I think for a movie that's very cynical of the Catholic church, I'm glad they kind of portray God as more of a positive figure. And one, and cause me growing up as a Lutheran, my idea of God has always been very positive and like, you know, God is very loving and forgiving. And I've always just had this idea of them, well, and me, and I'm like definitely more agnostic now, but I still have this idea that I would want my God to be, you know, a loving and caring and forgiving kind of person and just like idea. And I'm, I'm glad that that's, like I said, one of the more optimistic parts of the movie and like, like, yeah, it's, I would probably be upset too if, I were a woman and I found out that I was going to be, you know, the second Virgin Mary or the second carrier of, you know, the son of God. But it's, it's also like by the end of it, she knows that, you know, God is not this, this evil person doing this to her. Like it's, it's Alanis Morissette, you know, giving her a plan. And, and it's just, it's, I think it's, like I said, it's one of the more optimistic parts of the movie and I think it kind of portrays God in a up until like the reveal of, of God towards the end, it's mysterious enough for you to question like, Oh, 
for like a first time viewer, will we see God or like, do we get a glimpse of them? And um, it just creates this whole kind of environment in the movie that is kind of like more of a positive backdrop as the movie progresses, I think. I mean, with this being the most ambitious Kevin Smith film, uh, I think it's important to point out um, there was, I don't know if, I think it might've been before Dogma, uh, the film critic Andrew Saris said that he saw Kevin Smith as being the next Martin Scorsese. It, and that is kind of funny in retrospect because Kevin Smith was coming up the same time that like uh, Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson were making right. their first films. And and when you watch Clerks, uh, it's very interesting in the credits, Smith thanks like Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and all these other guys who had made indie films before him because they helped kind of open that door. But I think if you track the rest of Kevin Smith's career, like after Dogma, it seems like he had this bit of um, maybe an identity crisis because he kept kind of waffling between doing his View Askewiverse stuff, which never quite reached the the ambition of dogma and then would try an experiment like red state or something and um tusk. and tusk yeah <laughs> yeah that's true um <laughs> so I, I guess what, what i'm wondering is like um how do you track his evolution of a filmmaker why don't you think he's like do you think he's still like post dogma do you think he fell back into sort of a give the people what they want kind of place or do you think he's always been trying to fight between giving the people what they want and doing something new what do you what do you think about that i think that i mean as a filmmaker i think he does want to give what people want but i also think he wants to make the movies that he wants to make like mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of evident with something like tusk for example like i remember reading the news that he was going to make a horror movie where a mad Canadian scientist turns Justin Long into a walrus. And I was just really intrigued by that. And I think it's like, I, I, I'm pretty sure the only time I watched it was when it came out in theaters, <laughs> but I was pretty impressed with it, with how um, just bizarre it was for a film, for a, for a film. And in a sense, it didn't feel like a Kevin Smith movie. But I also came out of it thinking like, wow, Kevin Smith, like he he made a for what I for what I didn't expect from him, like in a horror in terms of a horror movie, he was he did pretty well. And I think that like even though I haven't seen Jay and Silent Bob reboot, that would probably be more along the lines of, you know, what the fans want. But from what I've also read, he's wanted to do it for a while. And that view skewiverse is what started everything. And so he he's probably really, really comfortable making that movie. And and didn't he directed Cop Out, right? Yes. Yeah. I, know uh, the... that I, I haven't seen that, but I know all the controversy with Bruce Willis. Right. And so I. I don't want to say like he's all post dogma. He's always made the movies he wants to make because he might have gone into that wanting to make that movie, but he came out of it probably not wanting to make that movie, or at least sure. with. Um, but and then around that time, he also made uh, Zach and Mary make a porno, which is that's um, true. Which is kind of feels a little bit like a 
a Judd Apatow adjacent kind of right yeah like it i i also remember reading about that when the new when um like they announced it and yeah i mean if you were to tell me nowadays like having no knowledge of it that it was a judd apatow movie i would completely you know believe <laughs> you but i think i'd have to watch a lot of i'd have to watch that again i need to watch tusk and i need to watch jay and silent bob but I think especially um, kind of post heart attack from him, Hmm. he really wants to do a lot more of what, you know, makes him happy as a filmmaker. And I know that he's, I'm pretty sure he's written clerks three already. Yeah. Which is what I'm really excited for because I, I love like clerks is his best movie, but I also really love clerks too. And I would love to see like where clerks three goes beyond that. And so I think while he doesn't always find his footing in terms of the films he makes, it's not for lack of trying. And I think he's a very kind of earnest filmmaker. And he I want to say he's probably the root of all the optimism and like the positive kind of aspects within dogma about, you know, religion and and Christianity and everything. And I think he's he's just a very kind of um He's, I mean, it's, it's easy to say he's a passionate filmmaker, but he, it's, it's never kind of stopped shining from Clerks through Dogma to now. And I think he's, he's had a weird evolution for sure in track run, but I mean, he's still doing it and he's like still, he's always about, you know, talking to the fans and, and making sure that, you know, they, they feel like respected and, yeah. and like they're kind of getting something out of it if it's not a hundred percent what they want he's doing what he wants and i think a lot of fans appreciate that and that's what's important like all the fans know that he's making these movies to make these movies and that you know he's just he's glad that anyone would like them yeah i i I would argue that he is known just as much as a public personality as he is a filmmaker like oh 100 percent, and a lot of that post dogma too yeah definitely post dogma like i mean i think about uh some of his best stuff he ever talked about on stage was about working with bruce willis on cop out like it's like the movie cop out it's worth it for the stories we got (laughs) that that he told um and and you know he was like one of the first podcasters too like smodcast was i mean i I, maybe maybe technically adam carolla is the i don't know who technically is the first but he he really like did it before you know now everybody everybody and their mom has a podcast uh so he, he he like revolutionized pop culture in a lot of ways definitely not in the way that i think andrew saris predicted by calling him the next martin scorsese because i don't think i, I don't even think i think kevin smith has a bit of an ironic detachment from the concept of being a filmmaker too like if you see uh in the commentary for dogma there's a great moment where the the camera like pans and kevin smith jokes and he goes like see i'm a visual filmmaker <laughs> uh, which is great and it's funny because if you watch like clerks the very like sort of uh this the the one-dimensional look of that whole movie feels very intentional and stylistic and obviously it came from their lack of resources but also it it kind of brings you into the mundanity of that job and it also kind of looks like you're watching it from uh like from the security cameras a bit and um 
And then I feel like for some time, uh, and what makes dogma so interesting is it's, it's, it's a bit of a mix of two things. It's Kevin Smith with his kind of, you know, sort of off the cuff feeling like uh, just point, point the camera and this will happen kind of style. But within the, like within the framework of a very different movie and it's like i don't think any other director would have done it the way kevin smith did it and that's what he brings it's such a personal aspect to that movie like i i was thinking about how i could i could see like any you know hack comedy director doing that movie and it would have been a it would have been significantly shorter and probably missing most of the the dialogue that i think kevin smith saw as important uh but it also would have ended with like I, I just I, I feel like they that movie had to be a Kevin Smith movie for it to become the cult classic that it did. So while somebody could knock him for not being a quote unquote visual filmmaker, it's like I don't think a movie like Dogma would get the longevity it has had if somebody else made it. And um, what's interesting, yeah, if you look at his last few movies, I mean, I remember him promoting. I might have mentioned this when we talked with uh, when we talked about Clerks, but he was promoting um, yoga hosers on Colbert, and he uh, he said something like, "I, I was telling people uh, this movie's kind of like Gremlins," and they were like, "No, Gremlins is good." And so he's like, also kind of admitting he's like, "This movie's kind of like it's kind of doing a bit like." I'm not submitting this as a genuine movie. It's just something I made that I love. My daughter's the main character of it. And it's like everything he does has that much passion and it's that personal. And if you look at the fact that Jay and Silent Bob, like the View Skewiverse was supposed to be done with Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And then he made Clerks 2 because he had promised Jason Mewes that he would play Jay again if he uh, got off drugs. And... Um, and then, you know, the fact that Jay and Silent Bob reboot, he made that because he wanted to do something great with all of his friends after surviving his heart attack. And and it's like, for that reason, I don't think we're ever going to see Kevin Smith doing a, a like a cop-out again, you know? I, right. I, I could see him maybe doing like a red state again, but at the same time, I don't think he's in that place where he could do something as sort of like cynical as something like red state because he just from the movies he's making and from if you watch his instagram and like all the stuff he's just i think he's in this new era of positivity where he's finally kind of progressed beyond the guy who always wears shorts and a hockey jersey even though he still does he he's he's a father now and he has maybe a zest for life that he didn't before are you do you understand what i'm saying yeah no a hundred percent and i remember He's talked about Clerks 3 a few times, and he said the first draft was a very kind of um, depressing and actually, like, very sad story. But he just completely scrapped it and wrote something new. And he said, like, it's so heartfelt and so, um, like, it's a great conclusion for all these characters. And I'm glad that, like, I would have still seen Clerks 3 regardless, but... I think all of those characters deserve, you know, a better and happier movie or ending. Um, even if, you know, Randall's, you know, kind of an insufferable asshole sometimes, <laughs> you know, he deserves something good out of it. And 
I'm I'm really glad. I mean, and like I didn't a hundred percent know that the reason he did the reboot was just to you know have fun and make this movie with all his friends again. Um, but I think what you said about him giving or making Clerks two to keep um, Jason Mewes sober, I think that's just kind of indicative of like just what kind of a person he is and what kind of a filmmaker he is. Like, yeah, we like Jason Muse is as much like Jay and Silent Bob. They wouldn't be the like iconic characters that are bigger than those movies. Like as much as like clerks and the whole skewiverse is like huge in the, in like just kind of like cult film, um, like just communities, the characters themselves are bigger than the movies. And yeah. They wouldn't be those icons without both Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith. And so I think it's it makes me like it's always made me really happy that he's cared that much about, you know, Jason Mewes, you know, one of his best friends. Yeah. And I think it really shines through in all those movies post because like in Dogma you can definitely tell that like Jason Muse is, is like waning off heroin in between takes and stuff like that. And it's one of the more like tougher segments of his life in terms of drugs. And when you get to something like, like clerks Two or even, you know, the reboot, even though I haven't seen it, you can tell he's a much more vibrant and um, just kind of energetic actor in playing this, you know, Jay character. And I'm really glad that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we got Clerks too, because he continued to, well, I don't, I mean, besides the reboot, I don't think there are any other view of movies since Clerks 2. I think Clerks 2 and the reboot are the only like, yes besides bob. maybe the jane silent bob animated movie or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah um but i'm glad that those are the two movies we've gotten from from or at least from in the view skewiverse because like i think they so clearly show even well like i said like i have i haven't seen the reboot but i'm more so with clerks too even though that was pre heart attack, I think it shows kind of a, it's, sh it shows that evolution of Kevin Smith as a filmmaker at the time. And he, mm -hmm. he wants to do this story that is, it's these same characters. And it's so obviously these same characters from the first movie. And a lot of that can be attributed to the actors too, but he, he knows how to make that movie that looks so different just on a technical scale from the first one in almost every way possible. And yet he brings the audience who knows these characters so well, it back into that setting and that familiarity 10 years later. And I think he just knows how to connect with the audiences that love him so much. And I'm really glad that like, he's, he's just making the movies that he wants to make at this point. So yeah. That's that's what I respect most from him as a filmmaker. And I mean, he he's able to do that because he cultivated a very passionate fan base really before he, you know, started making bigger movies. Um, yeah. And I think that fan base, you know, will follow him to the end. And it's like, he doesn't really have a need to do something like a cop out again. Like I remember him 
talk saying in his talks like the reason i struggled with bruce willis is i'd never worked with a real movie star before you know he worked right. with ben affleck before ben affleck was a movie star and he's like and bruce willis is this guy who's worked with you know quentin tarantino and john mctiernan and all these other dudes and it's now it's like this weed smoking guy in a hockey jersey uh who calls him boss you know it's like for him it's like a different experience and they didn't they just didn't jive and it's like that's obviously kind of a traumatic experience for kevin smith and i don't think he would ever put himself through that again if he didn't have to and at this point he doesn't have to and if you look at what he did with the reboot and what he did with i think with tusk also he just um he took him on the road first and uh you know, just showed them to his fans directly because he knows that there's a market for whatever he wants to make. And that kind of gives him the freedom to make these passion projects. And um, I mean, for that reason, do you think there is a future with Kevin Smith to like, to get more fans with new work? Or do you think that everything he'll make until until he's done, will be stuff for us who are already familiar with him. Well, I, I think that's not me bashing him by the way. Oh no, no, no. I, I think cause you know how, or with, with the internet now and how, how everything is so accessible, it's so easy for, you know, younger generations to become fans of older pieces of art. Like, um, I remember, at the start of like quarantine and the whole pandemic that um, one of the statistics that HBO gave out was that the Sopranos was the most streamed show they had on HBO. And like it had created a whole new generation of fans. And Mm -hmm. I think that Kevin Smith is one of those perfect kind of filmmakers with the perfect lines of work that could introduce a whole lot of newer fans and I know your question is is more so like, could his newer films generate the kind of like fans that his older ones have? And I think I would say yes, because he's got that talent and he knows how to like to create that kind of that spark in someone, whether they want to be a filmmaker or they just enjoy going to going to the movies and seeing something that is so clearly, you know, passionate from the heart. Yeah. Um, but I think also that, you know, the fans that have brought him here, at least for now, they're definitely the driving force and they are kind of, you know, what has made Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith. But I, I mean, I've, whenever I get the chance to, I always try and um, turn someone on to clerks or dogma or any of those. And clerks is almost, um, almost usually the ones that like, if they haven't seen it, they've definitely heard of it. And I try to get people into it and create new fans of him. But yeah. it's I think he he definitely has the potential to gain more fans with both new works that he does and with his old catalog. Because, like I've said, a lot of his movies, especially Clerks and Dogma, are perfect examples of being both timed like it's very much a piece of the cultural time that it came out in like clerks is very much a 1994 movie yeah and Ogma's very 1999 but there's something about both of them that is also timeless in a sense and yeah something that just kind of sucks you in as a viewer and someone who just 
wants to like watch a a good movie and i think that he kind of he knows how to do that especially and he can continue to do that but in the meantime with his older work i think that can help bring in the newer fans that you're asking about yeah and, and to that point i mean i don't think either of us were alive when clerks came out right right but no like, exactly. You know, Clerks Clerks appealed to me when I saw it when I was like 13 because I was just like a kid who wanted to make movies with my friends too, you know? And uh, and then Dogma appealed to me when I was older than that just because, you know, I was like, I was raised Catholic and I, I, I it resonated with me what Kevin Smith was saying and I thought it was a, a well-written, like funny movie, you know, with the talented cast. And um, yeah, I definitely think there's a place for those movies to resonate. You know, like they, like you said, they're definitely dated, but they can still be relevant and dated at the same time. By the way, did you have anything else in your notes you wanted to talk about before we're done? Uh, so, Dogma Notes. Peak douchey Ben Affleck. Um, beautiful looking production-wise, which coming off of Clerks and Mallrats is very impressive. Yeah. Um, Jason Lee, a Scientologist, is in a satire movie about religion. Which had another great layer of unintended. Sex. I did not know Jason Lee was a Scientologist. Oh yeah, he divorced his first wife because she was not oh. cool with Scientology. I guess that's that's how you end up in Alvin and the Chipmunks, right? <laughs> Three of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then another one was just I miss Alan Rickman, and then the the quote I had was we figure an abortion clinic is a good place to meet loose women. So those were kind of just like the main. Because I at a certain point I stopped writing notes just because I got that much into the movie again, but um, yeah, no the um, the Jason Lee one is one of my favorites, especially playing Azriel, a kind of someone who's on the fence for both sides. I think it's funny that he's because I, I think he's a he's a fine actor, but I, I kind of mm -hmm. have a little bit of distaste for anyone who's really associated with Scientology, so. <laughs> I'll put in a little jab for him there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get you. And I think, um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think if I was trying to, like, tell somebody to watch, like, like a, a layman, you know, trying to introduce him to Kevin Smith movies, and I, I wanted them to see a movie that's very Kevin Smith, but also highly accessible to, like, anyone, I think my go-to would be Dogma. Because I think Clerks appeals a bit more after you've maybe if you're just it's a little more specific of a taste and you kind of have to make your way there do, do you get that feeling it's more for like like you said for the people that wanted to make movies with their friends like it's kind of that that love letter that someone actually went and did that you know at their yeah. work you know at nighttime and it's i would definitely say dogmo is more accessible for sure in that it's, the production value, like you mentioned, yeah, it, and, in color, yeah. you know, it it looks like uh, like uh, I don't want to say it looks like a real movie, not to say that Clerks doesn't, but it looks looks like like you said, an actual production and something that is, um, you know, if you were like like when I worked at NCG, if I were to go in and you know do theater checks, it would just look like just any other kind of normal movie that's playing, and it's mm. it kind of fits in more with just what people are used to and expect in terms like you said with color or like yeah with this production i would i would agree that dogma is probably it's uh his most accessible in terms of 
um, like you said, his most Kevin Smith movie um, with all these characters that make, you know, like Jane Silent Bob. And um, I'm pretty sure the the reporter at the beginning of the movie who's played by uh, the the guy who plays Dante. Um, oh, Dante, um, yeah, Brian. Um, O'Halloran. Brian, Brian yeah, O'Halloran, I yeah. think. Yeah. He, the the reporter's name is Grant Hicks, so they never outright say like this is Dante's brother, but yeah. it's I, it's very much kind of alluded that uh, like this is this is Dante from Clerks, but it's not really Dante. I think it's uh, supposed to be the same character that he plays in Mallrats, also. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I think he's uh, also Grant Hicks. Uh, so yeah, I w- I would definitely agree that Dogma is the most accessible. But it's also kind of in that sense, like you have to maybe know your audience of who's going to watch it. Like, I'm not going to go recommend it to um, my grandparents who go to <laughs> church every Sunday, you know. Right. Uh, well, they might enjoy it, too, because they're they're Lutheran and, and they um, they don't like outright. They, they they're not like super anti pope or anti Catholic, but sure. they probably have some interesting takes on it. But. You, you definitely I don't want to say you have to, like, always know your audience when um, recommending it. But in the at the same time, there's a reason why it's you know, it was controversial at the time. And it's it's definitely it's a conversation piece for sure, just like its concept in general. And um, and I think that, you know, you, I would argue, too, that's more of a reason to watch it, to kind of um, engage you know, your opinions on the the theme and the whole satire of the movie. Um, so I would agree with you. I'd probably recommend Dogma first to like a first time viewer of Kevin Smith. So as we wind down, I do want to ask, like out of this huge ensemble cast we've talked about, who do you think is the MVP? Like, who do you come away with, like thinking about the most? Ben Affleck, easily. Yeah, yeah I because because. He is just, he has that layer of charm on the surface, but as he talks more and more and reveals his character, he gives that like very douchey vibe and very evil vibe. But he's, while him and Loki are the antagonists, I would say they are just as much of the main character, or at least Ben Affleck ends up being just as much of a main character as Bethany is. And like, I mean, and that's why, you know, it's protagonist versus antagonist. But I think that he's kind of like he ends up being the big bad guy for a reason. And he is like kind of that perfect totem for the pessimistic side of the movie and like the um, kind of what we take negatively out of religion and this kind of just looking for ways out or looking for loopholes. Um, And he's just he's got that acting talent that still shines through today. And I, 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 I want to say too, that I love the um, wardrobe design for yeah. the angels, how it's like just the long, like kind of black trench coats, but they've got like hoodies of different colors. I always thought that was really cool, but I would say Ben Affleck. And then I think for a honorable mention, I love Chris rock as Rufus. Yeah. I, yeah, he is hysterical, but he also gives a lot of insight in more of a human way as opposed to like these 
omnipotent angels just coming down and and being like just kind of more of a ridiculous character rufus is just the dead and he comes back and he's the 13th apostle and i think he's 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 a part that keeps the movie going especially in terms of like its humor yeah i agree um and i went to letterboxd and i pulled up the half star reviews for this movie um (laughs) which i don't know if there's a whole lot to extract from this besides just kind of laughing about them (laughs) but uh one is a half star review i hate this movie i don't know how kevin smith ever became popular and i hate him Um, (laughs) it's all one sentence <laughs> this one's maybe my favorite because it's a bit confusing. So it's a half star out of five. He says, insulting film toward religion, worth of view, do not have the film. Which I, it confuses. So he's he, he's saying it's insulting towards religion, but he's saying it's worth watching. It then says that he doesn't have, I think he's saying he doesn't own it. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't, I don't know with Letterboxd half the time, man. <laughs> because some people are just ironic on Letterboxd. It's a strange subculture. The last one I guess I'll read is, uh, well, it's a biblical comedy. It did hurt my sentiments. So if anyone is religious enough, avoid this. That's all I want to say. Uh, okay. They were, I feel like they were genuinely religious and and kind of hurt over the movie. Yeah, I think that was I think that was a religious person kind of saying, "Hey, if anyone happens to be religious, they're not going to like this." You know, <laughs> my religious friend didn't like it. <laughs> but but I can kind of tell they're a bit like of a. There, I feel like they they wanted to go into it like looking for at least a a good movie, but they were just yeah. They probably didn't know what they were in for. Can you imagine a non-religious person genuinely watching a movie that kind of pokes fun at religion going, whoa, I don't think the religious people will like this. Dude, wait till Pope Francis hears about this. (laughs) Someone (laughs) ring up Frank. Uh, He'll be pissed. Is there anything else you want to say before we're done? Um... I, no, I guess just that I, I really do miss Alan Rickman, and I think he was another great standout in this movie. Yes, yeah, one of the best. Um, I, I talked in our Die Hard episode just about, gosh, like he brought everything to he, every Alan Rickman line. You can't quote without trying to do Alan Rickman's voice. You know, like you know, honestly, Kevin Smith should have asked Alan Rickman had he known like ahead of time that he'd be working with Bruce Willis. He should have asked him for advice. Oh yeah. Oh, he should have put him in Cop Out. He should have played the bad guy against Bruce Willis in Cop Out. That would have. Uh, might have he, should, he should play the Sean William Scott role. <laughs> oh, God. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, this will be out on Easter. So happy Easter, too. Yep. Happy Easter, everyone. Thank you, Johnny. I really appreciate it. I'm broke, but I'm happy. I'm poor, but I'm kind. I'm short, but I'm healthy. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of We Are Movies. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Eric for coming back on. Definitely go follow him on all of the social media stuff. And if you haven't yet, you can follow us 
at We Are Movies Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can also follow the Facebook page, We Are Movies. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Johnny Mockney, J O H N N Y M O C N Y. That is all I have for you today. I will be back with you very soon. Have a wonderful Easter. And I'll be back in a week with a really big episode with quite possibly the biggest guest I've ever had on the podcast. Um, I don't know if I'll spoil who it is yet. Okay. uh, All right. You got me. It's Ben Affleck. 